I know you could listen to her all day and look at those amazing pictures. It is one of the most extraordinary theatre archives in the world. And, and thanks to Mairead for taking such great care of it and for letting us know uh, something about what's in it today. Moving on, our, our last speaker on the panel today is uh, Dr. Fergal McGarry, who's a senior lecturer in modern history at Queen's University in Belfast. He's a prolific author, biographer of two very different characters, uh, Ono Duffy and Frank Ryan, on opposite sides, if you like, in the 1930s, and two very fine books on the Easter Rising, one of which is regarded as the definitive book on the event, along with Charles Townsend's uh, study, and the other, a wonderful compendium of voices from the period gathered from the Bureau of Military History, about which, which I spoke to you earlier. He's going to be convening a, a, a very interesting conference under the auspices of Universities Ireland in Belfast in June of this year on Ireland and World War I, uh, which will have a, a stellar bunch of people talking at it. Uh, and today he's going to talk to us about the Bureau of Military History and connections with, with the theatre that he can uh, delve into and find in that. Fergal McGarry. Thanks, uh, Katrina. Uh, great, thanks for having me here. Um, so I'm, I'm here today to talk about one particular archive, uh, which Katrina has already uh, mentioned, and that's the Bureau of Military History. Uh, and this conference is about memory, and I think the Bureau of Military History can claim to be uh, the most important, certainly the largest repository of memory memories of the Irish uh, Revolution. Um, and I'm also talking about it because uh, one of the performances uh, tomorrow um, by uh, Jimmy Murphy is an adaptation of um, uh, my book based on the Bureau's um, material. So I'll provide a little bit of context um, to that. So this is a paper in two parts. The, uh, I'll talk a little bit about the Bureau of Military History itself, uh, the archive, and then by way of illustrating just how, how rich the Bureau is, uh, I'll talk a little bit about, about what the Bureau tells us about the involvement of the Abbey Theatre, the relationship between the Abbey Theatre and the Easter Rising. Um, so uh, what is the Bureau of Military History? Um, it was established in 1947 by the Irish government uh, to gather oral testimony um, to form the basis for a history of the independence movement from the formation of the Irish Volunteers in 1913 until the truce of July 1921. Uh, and the dates are kind of important, um, uh, as, as we'll see. But fortunately, um, there's, a there's a lot more than that in the Bureau's uh, material because most people essentially recorded their life stories. So there's a lot of information about radicalization in turn of the century and how people uh, grew up in Ireland in the early 20th century and late 19th century. And some people do go beyond 1921 and talk about subsequent events. Um, now, the reason it stops at 1921 is a very uh, pragmatic one uh, to avoid discussion of the Civil War. And it's difficult to imagine that this archive could have been produced in the 1940s had uh, the Civil War been included within its remit. So the investigators were mainly military officers and they went around the country um, gathering what we call uh, witness statements from uh, former revolutionaries. And sometimes these statements were uh, written by uh, the uh, witnesses themselves, but more often the statements were based on the oral testimony of the witnesses, drafted up by the military investigators and then given to the witnesses to, to sign off and authenticate. 
1959, when the Bureau came to an end, it had recorded over 1,700 statements, um, some of them very short, some of them very long, from members of the Irish Volunteers, the IRB, the Irish Citizen Army, uh, and so on. And consisting of, of 36,000 pages of first-person uh, narrative testimony, it's probably the uh, richest oral history of any uh, modern revolution. It's a, and it's a, a, a tremendous uh, resource. The twist in the, in the tale to the archive was that after this uh, fantastic resource was gathered, it was locked up in government buildings and sealed until the death of the last uh, witness, which is why it only became available in the last um, decade. Now, as might be imagined, there are some problems with this um, source, very much related to the theme of today's conference of memory. Uh, subjectivity is obviously an issue. These are all first-person um, accounts. Uh, bias, particularly because of the Civil War, a movement which had been intimately associated becomes riven by um, hatreds. But these issues aren't actually, as I think, as, 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 as much a problem as you might expect. Memory is an issue. People are remembering at a distance of more than three decades uh, events that they uh, took part in, and the details are frequently inaccurate. Selectivity uh, is an issue. Uh, there's obvious gaps. Uh, there's very little from unionists, uh, from the British authorities, uh, from constitutional nationalists. Um, women are underrepresented. Uh, and uh, there are very interesting kind of... Um, not just omissions, but there are people who refused to give testimony. Um, so, for example, one uh, flying column uh, member refused to give a witness statement on the grounds that his memories were tainted with aversion and disgust. And reticence is a, is, is a, is a big theme and in, 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 uh, a big reason for a lot of the silences um, about this uh, period. The assistant undersecretary uh, at Dublin Castle refused to participate on the grounds that he felt it would be a biased travesty and uh, that would perpetuate hatred of England. Um, Anti-treatyites often refused to participate. Elizabeth O'Farrell, who brought Pierce's uh, surrender to General Maxwell, refused on the grounds that all governments since 1921 had betrayed the Republic. The most notable absentee was the most senior surviving Republican, uh, Eamon de Valera, whose government had actually set up the archive itself, and he didn't give a witness statement. And those politicians who did give statements were also among some of the more tricky uh, uh, statements to interpret, uh, as, as, as you can imagine. There's, there's, there's also gaps uh, in topics discussed. Some killings are talked about a lot. Some killings are not. Unarmed people, for example, um, sectarian killings and so on. Now, none of these problems, I think, are insurmountable. The vast number of witness statements means that you have multiple perspectives for most uh, events and periods and subjects. Um, and subjectivity, as opposed to being a weakness, is probably uh, the key strength of the archive. Uh, and the archive um, is strongest, I think, in terms of giving a sense of the mentality of people who participated in the revolutionary uh, period. And most of the other sources that we have from this period are also uh, biased, uh, but against Republicans, rather than reflecting their point of view. Things like press accounts and police sources, for example. So 
So what are the, what, what are the uh, strengths? Well, a brilliant insight into, often into the mentality of Republican revolutionaries, and particularly into the rank and file, not the leaders, because we know about the leaders from memoirs and letters and so on, but the kind of people who are from working class or lower middle class backgrounds who didn't leave behind that kind of material. The fact that the witness statements are first person gives a sense of what it felt like to be there at the time, and by doing that they restore an element of sort of contingency um, to the period, because the, the problem we have looking back on the Easter Rising, of course, is, as, as, as historians, is we know what happened, and in some ways that can be uh, misleading. When you look at the witness statements, they convey very clearly um, uh, surprising aspects, like many rebels were surprised by the fact that it was a Republican event. Um, they, 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 some of them didn't recognize the tricolor. Some of them didn't know why a republic was proclaimed. They were just fighting for Ireland. You get a really clear sense of how marginal the separatists were before 1916, the seeming hopelessness of their cause. And of course, that uh, influenced very much um, how they um, responded to the events. You get a very clear sense of divisions within the movement, uh, whether between different parts of the country, between different classes, between different Republican organisations, and even the differences within organisations, such as the Irish Volunteers and the Citizen Army, which are completely riven about whether there should be a rebellion. They're incredibly strong in the process by which people came to be revolutionaries. Uh, they describe the obstacles that, that young people um, faced uh, in becoming radical, parental disapproval, clerical censure, fear of uh, ridicule, uh, the relative lack of importance of political ideologies, such as republicanism, is striking. It's certainly much less important in people's sort of life stories of how they became a revolutionary than things like family background, childhood influences, Catholicism, the language, culture, um, history, and, and social and communal factors, such as land in the West or sectarianism uh, in the North. Um, so they're also a source not just for political history, but for social and cultural and uh, gender history. The extent to which women were excluded from an equal role, uh, even within the most revolutionary bodies, such as the Irish Citizen Army, is evident. Um, it's also evident how some women refused to accept these constraints. So Anya Heron, for example, in her witness statement, records her decision to fight in the Rising, despite expecting her third child at the time. And one can only imagine someone like Eamon de Valera being horrified um, by that decision. The wealth of detail and the type of detail preserves some of the texture of the past. So they're a very unique source in that sense. The witness statements describe the kind of clothes that people wore, um, how they moved about, mostly on bicycle, what kind of food they ate. They tell us what the rebels actually did during the rising, um, surprisingly little fighting. Um, a lot of praying, uh, the odd song and dance, uh, pranks, jokes. Uh, people in the GPO read the mail. They were bored. There was nothing to do. <laughs> they describe what the weather was like during Easter week. It was really warm, unusually warm in Dublin. And by the end of the week, that hastened the decomposition of all the animal carcasses and the bodies um, on the ground. Um, in Cork, the weather was terrible, and that compounded the sense that the rising was a, was a, was a, was a washout. 
So in this respect, I think not just for historians, but for writers and artists, they're a wonderful source because they give us this kind of textured sense of the past. And also, um, thanks to Katrina Crow, among others, they've been digitized, so they're incredibly easy to use. Um, you just go to the website and you can type in an individual's name, a place, uh, a subject, uh, and you'll immediately um, draw lots of hits. Now, when I did my research for uh, for, for my book, uh, Rebels, the witness statements hadn't been digitized, and I had to sit in the archives over the period of two years, reading the, the, the collection from beginning to end, file by file, and had they been digitized, uh, it would have been a much easier book to, to, to produce, but, but I think actually it would have been a worse book. So that raises questions about digitization that we might talk about later, because you don't have a physical sense then of the, the collection in its entirety. Now, so by way of demonstrating uh, uh, the value of the witness statements, uh, I, I, I'm drawing on my research into seven members of the Abbey Theatre who took part in the Easter Rising. I, I just want to bring us to a few uh, extracts. Now, um, in general, uh, these provide uh, um, plenty of evidence supporting uh, Yeats's claim that the Abbey, meaning himself really, uh, was, was central to the, the, the wider political uh, awakening. But they also raise kind of issues where we need a bit of caution in interpreting the material. Uh, this one, obscured unfortunately by the picture, is PJ Little, a Republican uh, journalist, talking about how he met Yeats immediately after Easter week and told him that he was going to jokingly tell the British authorities that Kathleen Nehulahan was to blame for the Easter Rising. And one has an image of Yeats walking away from the, the meeting, scratching his head and going, did that play of mine? But yeah, we, we, we'll never know. Um, these statements here are very typical statements in some respects in that uh, they reinforce the idea that people became radicalized through the Abbey's uh, um, uh, dramatic work. But uh, a bit of caution is needed. Dorothy McArdle was from a wealthy background and I think her experiences weren't typical of her generation. Many more people were uh, radicalized, for example, by the GEA, obviously, than something like the Abbey's plays. Looking at my seven Abbey rebels, what's interesting is that the, the process is actually reversed. They're not politicized through the theater. Rather, they come to the theater because they're already politicized. So drama plays this central function within radical nationalism um, at, at the time. Podrick O'Kelly's witness statement, I won't read them all because time is against me. Podrick O'Kelly's witness statement demonstrates the, the idea that there was almost a natural progression from learning Irish and becoming immersed in culture to fighting for Ireland. But at, and that's true as far as it goes for many of the revolutionary generation, but it's also very misleading because the vast majority of people who did take part in cultural nationalism you know, didn't end up militant or republican uh, or revolutionaries. So there's a need for, for, for care. Um, This is a nice image here of, a, of, of, of uh, Michael Knightley talking about how he'd been watching a, uh, Robert Emmett's revolution enacted on the stage and then recalling that um, conversation later. And at first glance, it seems to reinforce this uh, linkage between watching revolution being performed and performing uh, revolution. But if you go and look at the play that he watched, Lennox Robinson's The Dreamers, you see that although it casts the, the revolutionaries in a very attractive light, 
It also depicts them as impractical idealists whose naivety is contrasted with the self-interest of the masses who are, who, who are beyond um, redemption. And there's a very interesting scene in The Dreamers where the people of Dublin take advantage of Emmett's rebellion not to join in, but to go out and loot. So a key theme of many um, Abbey plays that the revolutionary methods adopted by uh, earlier generations of patriots were a vestige of a more heroic age is something that actually you see as part and parcel of the, 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 the discourse of the 1910s and even constitutional nationalists come out with the, this idea and it's only after dreamers like Pierce enact on Dublin streets scenes which everybody had assumed would be confined to the stage that the sentimental patriotism of plays like Kathleen Nehulhan comes to seem to be very dangerous. The other thing um, which we can use the Bureau for is tracing uh, individuals through the rebellion. Each of the seven rebels who come from the Abbey Theatre, we can glimpse uh, snapshots of them during Easter week. And in some cases, as with Helena Maloney, who gives a long statement, we get much more than snapshots of what they were doing. Um, and here we have uh, Arthur Shields uh, mobilising on the way to uh, um, the uh, Abbey uh, on, on Easter Monday and returning to the Abbey Theatre um, to take part in the play, which, as we heard, never took place. Um, the spancel of death there. Um, and here are some other um, scenes. Uh, so the, the Bureau is full of dramatic scenes um, uh, uh, of, of uh, Easter week. Sean Connolly, an Abbey actor, dying in the arms of Helena Maloney, um, also an Abbey actor. Um, and also the, the final... Uh, um, extract there looks at Arthur Shields, who actually takes part in the final um, surrender at Moore Street, and quite quite a poignant sort of description of uh, the sense of failure at the end of that. Uh, and these are some of the Abbey actors here, who I don't have time to talk about um, here, un unfortunately. Uh, the final point I want to make uh, is what else we can use the, the uh, Bureau material for, and that's a sense of reconstructing the geography of revolutionary Dublin and the networks between uh, 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 revolutionaries. And I'll just give you a few examples of uh, the kind of material, what it allows us to piece together. Um, the importance of uh, particular um, organisations uh, and particular spaces Theatre is obviously one of those, but also church halls and pubs and back rooms of shops where different groups come together. The importance of specific organisations who, who have been somewhat overlooked, like Anina Naheran, the women's group that form part of the movement that leads to the Abbey Theatre. And to just give a couple of examples of physical spaces, the drafty hall behind the egg and butter store in Camden Street, where the Irish National Dramatic Company put on its first plays, later hosted uh, Fina Aaron's inaugural meetings, at which four of the Abbey Seven rebels um, attend. Count Plunkett's Hardwick Street building, provided a home not just for the Irish theatre's productions, but for the Dunemer Cooperative, where the designer, Elner Monsell, designed the symbol of the Abbey, for the meetings of Nafina Aaron, for the Irish volunteers' drilling classes, Cumannamon's concerts, and the stage also concealed, concealed the IRB's ammunition dump before Easter week. And a final example of a sort of physical place bringing together networks, the meeting room at the back of the tobacconist shop on High Street, where another of the Abbey's rebels, Maureen Akshulik, assisted her father, an elderly Fenian printer, was frequented by attending classes and so on. Lee Mellows, who led the Rising in Galway. 
Citizen Army activist Michael Mullen, who was the inspiration for Shadowver Gunman's Seamus uh, um, Shields. Uh, the Abbey rebel, Padder Kearney. His friend, the Abbey stage manager, Sean Barlow. Ginny O'Flanagan, better known as Mrs. De Valera. And Michael O'Hanrahan, executed for his role in the Easter Rising. And something of the, the shock felt at the realization that people from these backgrounds, individuals who lacked any social or political standing, had somehow transformed Irish history at Easter 1916, I think is conveyed in Yeats's poem of the same name. So while some of this information looks in a sense kind of trivial, it allows us to reconstruct the networks uh, that, that, that formed revolutionary Dublin. So in conclusion, uh, what's most valuable about this, this uh, source, which I hope all of you will have a look at if you haven't already, uh, one, the multiplicity of perspectives which complicates our historical narratives of the period. You can use them to present the rebels in a positive or a negative light. Collectively, the archive challenges the notion of an ideologically coherent revolution. They suggest that most revolutionaries saw themselves as fighting for Ireland or fighting for freedom, rather than a specific political vision. And that helps to explain the conservative um, nature of the republic that emerged from that revolution. They offer a more complex picture of the revolutionary generation, much more fractious and more flawed than the heroes that were commemorated outside the GPO in subsequent decades, but at the same time also much more human, uh, much more vibrant and attractive. And as a result, I hope they'll bring about a more nuanced and balanced assessment of the rebels and their actions in 2016. Um, the authorities tell me that we don't have any time for questions, alas, because we uh, went over our time. Um, one of my favourite stories from the Bureau of Military History is when the lads went into Jacob's biscuit factory. They found themselves surrounded by confectionery. They had biscuits and cakes to eat, but alas, nothing else. And after two days of biscuits and cakes, they were sick to their stomachs and had to send out a flying column to get bread and butter and meat. And one of them was unfortunately shot on his bicycle and died subsequently. Now, I'm really sorry that we don't have time to have questions from the audience. I'm sure you have very many of them, but alas, uh, we have a tight schedule here today and we're going to uh, have to stop. I want to thank our three speakers for fantastically interesting presentations. And I advise you to read Patrick Lonergan, to read Fergal McGarry and to await the fantastic digital archive from the Abbey which hopefully will be freely available online at some point. Thank you very much.